Hey there, listeners. Just a couple of quick reminders before we get started on the show. Number one, Queers at the End of the World has a Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world. And now's a really great time to join if you haven't already and it's within your means and desires because there will be a lot of great outtakes from this episode. Uh, We had such an awesome conversation and not everything fits. So if you can, come on over and join us at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world. And even if you can't support us on the Patreon, there are lots of other ways to support us like you can write us a review on apple podcasts or you can do the best thing of all which is to tell somebody who you think will enjoy the show about it i know that's how i find out about all my favorite podcasts so we would love it if you told a friend our second announcement is that queers at the end of the world is seeking scripts we're going to produce a series of short audio fictions oriented towards queer utopian futures you can find the call in the form to submit your ideas on QueerWorlds.com under Radio Plays. There is a version of Nausicaa that was released in the U.S. that's a recut version of the original film called Warriors of the Wind. The whole entire thing is just like, fuck yeah, America! Yes. Black and white binary story. Yeah, it's, it's bad. <laughs> There's actually a poster of it, Nina. So he's got a god warrior friend. He's riding an omu. And who is in that? Who's the other guy? That's um. Is it Skeletor? Skeletor. That's <laughs> it. That's a Pegasus. That's a winged pony. Yeah, like a like a Valkyrie. I don't know. They all have AK forty sevens. I'm very confused. <laughs> Another subtitle on another one of the posters for Warriors of the Wind is 1,000 years from now, the only hope for the future is in the hands of a princess. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. no. (laughs) Tiny, tiny hands. (laughs) Oh man. I mean, it really does look like He Man just sort of rolled in. You know, to the scene mm-hmm. of corruption and was just like, I can improve this script. <laughs> <laughs> this is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast where a thousand years from now, only the language we spoke to our cats has survived us, and scholars pore over the past's essential questions, such as who indeed is a good kitty. I'm your host, Nina. I'm your host, Nat. And I'm your host, Ellie. And today we're talking about the long-running manga by Hayao Miyazaki, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. And a big part of why we're talking about this particular post-apocalypse is because of our extra special co-host for this episode, the inimitable Ellie Yanagasawa. Hi, everyone. Ellie created the gorgeous, intricate show art for Queers at the End of the World, so you hear her name at the end of every episode. And way back when the show was just a twinkle in our collective eye, I was talking with Ellie about her plan for the art, and she emailed me some images from this manga. So there's a deep strain of connection between the story of Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind, and the story of the show, and Ellie's love for this comic is why we're here. And we are so, so excited to have Ellie come nerd out with us about Nausicaa. So speaking of the story of Nausicaa, that is actually no small proposition. The comic ran from 1982 through 1994, so there is a lot of plot to cover here. If you've seen the amazing Symphony of Synthesizers 1980s film from Studio Ghibli, you've seen a different story. With some of the same characters, but maybe like a seventh of the storyline? So we're going to do our best to cover the plot in broad strokes, 
It will still be rife with spoilers, but trust us that if you haven't read the manga yet, there will be so much more for you to dive into than we'll ever be able to touch on in a single episode. So the plot of Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. It's many thousands of years in the future in a version of the world where only relatively few humans survive on the planet. The world is mostly covered by a massive forest of tree-sized fungi known as the Sea of Corruption. Because this fungal jungle emits toxic spores, which instantly kill anyone who breathes them. Our main character is Nausicaa, princess of a small farming kingdom on the edge of the Sea of Corruption, which is protected from the nearby clouds of spores by the wind off the ocean. The people who live in the Valley of the Wind, as it's called, are farmers and flyers, and Nausicaa is the best pilot of all. She also has a special affinity with the other major species in this world, which are the giant insects who live in the Sea of Corruption and include an array of humongous bugs. There are sharp-toothed dragonflies the size of airplanes and kind of flat-flying tapeworm things, and of course the omu, which look sort of like pill bugs the size of aircraft carriers. And all of these bugs are peaceful, but they share a telepathic connection, and if one of them is hurt, the whole swarm becomes enraged, and anyone in the way is deadzo. Nausicaa, with her special affinity, connects with the Omu telepathically, and she's especially good at calming them down, which she does right at the beginning of the book in order to save the life of her mentor, the adventurer and swordsman, Lord Yupa. To bypass a lot of intricacies of plot, Nausicaa, Yupa, and all the pilots and warriors of the Valley of the Wind are called to fight by their nominal king, the Torumekian Emperor, who has sent his daughter, this badass general named Kushana, to gather all the tribes of the periphery, Valley of the Wind included, and make them fight against the only other major kingdom around, which is called the Dorok Empire. Before she can get to the war, however, Nausicaa is waylaid when she tries to save an air freighter full of refugees from crashing and ends up being asked to hold onto a fist-sized stone by the dying princess of the refugees. The stone, it turns out, is the control module or heart for a god warrior. God warriors are things from the distant past. They were huge nuclear-powered robot flesh hybrid giants that were created by a thousand years gone civilization called Eftal. In fact, using the god warriors as weapons during a period called the Seven Days of Fire is what led to the total destruction of Eftal and the existence of the Sea of Corruption. As it turns out, the Tormekians have found a jacked-up, partly-finished god warrior buried in the ruins of one of Eftal's ancient cities, and they need the heart module in order to make it work. That's what Kushana has really been sent to the peripheries to find, since the Tormekians want to use it to defeat the Doroks once and for all. What ensues are seven books of scary, confusing war in which both the Tormekians, who are power-thirsty, manipulative horrors with a greedy upper class, and the Doroks, who are theocratic techno-wizard horrors with a power-mad priest class, fight it out in the most brutal and depraved ways they can think of, including genetically engineered giant fungus weapons, using the berserker rage of the insects against their enemies, and good old-fashioned siege and starvation. Their war, however, is taking place against the backdrop of a much grander and more far-reaching ecological collapse. The Sea of Corruption is experiencing a once-in-300-years spate of rapid growth called the Daikaisho, and soon the fungal forest is going to cover the whole continent, making life there impossible. The plot is as chaotic as you'd expect given an all-out war in the context of ecological crisis, so we won't try to give you every detail. Suffice it to say that absolutely nothing is on one side of the good-bad binary in this book. Kushana of Tormekia is a complicated good guy who cares about her soldiers and wants to do the right thing, but also starts the book by murdering an entire city. 
The Dorok priest class includes many true holy people who are willing to sacrifice themselves for the greater good of protecting Nausicaa and trying to save the world from the coming collapse, even as their techno-magics brought that collapse about. And even the Sea of Corruption itself is actually not just a toxic wasteland, but it turns out it's a complex ecological mechanism for cleansing the Earth of the terrible nuclear pollutions that almost completely destroyed the planet a thousand years back in the Seven Days of Fire. At the very bottom of the fungal forest floor, where the oldest mushrooms are, there are actually spaces where there are no toxins and humans can breathe without masks. At the end, Nausicaa finds herself having to escort a living but still jacked up and falling apart god warrior named Oma, who thinks she's its mother. Oma flies Nausicaa to the Dorokoli city of Shua. In Shua, there's a crypt full of techno-magics that are basically, long story short, the cryogenically frozen rich of the thousand-year-old dead civilization. They're waiting in there for the Sea of Corruption to finish purifying things so they can come back and reclaim the world. Ultimately, the world in which these perfect, pure beings can live is one where Nausicaa and her companions are physically incapable of existing, since their bodies are evolved to handle the polluted, impure world that they currently have. Nausicaa makes the decision to destroy all the embryos in the crypt, using the power of the god warrior Oma, and she emerges back out into the new, old world as the story ends. Okay, we know that was a lot. And it's still just a fraction. There are characters we're going to mention whose names we didn't even say. So we'll try to keep giving you context as we go, but that's the basics. War, giant sea of toxic mushrooms, flying machines and giant insects, no good guys or bad guys except Nausicaa, who's basically the messiah. And oh yeah, uh, giant nuclear mecha warriors who call you mommy. Let's get started. (laughs) (laughs) Mommy. I was reading an article that said there were some commonalities between Nausicaa and this Japanese story called The Lady Who Loved Insects. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I read articles about it. Yeah, like a story written during the Heian period, which is around the 700s or something. And it's a story about a princess who is like ostracized by her family because she you know, frocks around fields and studies insects instead of preparing to become a wife or whatever. Yeah, it's a short entry in Wikipedia, which was just where I hopped to read about this. But it says here, portrayed as even more eccentric is her disregard for her physical appearance. She leaves her hair untrimmed, has unplucked eyebrows, neglects to blacken her teeth, which I believe was a Heian period style of femininity, Mm -hmm. and allows herself to be seen by men anti-princessness about about that character that obviously that immediately resonates with me yeah Mm -hmm. well nausicaa is really like i mean it's not such a theme throughout the rest of the series which i appreciate that we're not constantly being reminded that she's a girl and oh my god she's a girl Mm -hmm. but in the first volume there is this kind of like discomfort that some of the other male pilots feel about the fact that she's like such an incredible pilot and that she's clearly going to be um, taking over the throne. She's her father's only kid. And then that, you know, kind of with the later scenes where like she's protecting the baby Omu Mm -hmm. and kind of that like hiding, like hiding this insect. There's, yeah, there's, there's definitely like some gender descent and gender fuckery kind of connected to her, like, insect love and, and compassion. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, growing up, she was like, she was like a role yeah. model when I was a kid. I wanted to be Nausicaa so badly because it was like, so look at this badass, like, pilot who isn't afraid of these gigantic bugs and is just so like headstrong and strong-willed yeah when did you first encounter the manga and or the movie uh i first watched the movie when i was i was young i was like maybe five or six when i first watched it and then the manga i happened upon when i was a teenager and i was like what there's a whole there's a whole story and universe yeah Yeah, no i think it it, it, the the story has definitely changed like with the context of like COVID and also just how climate change and climate catastrophe are just like much, much more of a thing at the front of my mind every time I read it. Yeah. It's aged well, unfortunately. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking when I was reading it that I think a younger version of me would have been like, there's something cool about the yeah. clothes in, in it and the masks seem cool in a way. And when I see masks now, it's just wrapped up in so much feelings of grief and I don't know, periods of hopelessness that I've had about COVID and fear. And it it's, I mean, it's emotionally rich territory in a way it would not have been for me if I'd read it 10 years ago. Um, It's not rich in a way that's like, yay, but it it gives me a lot, I think, better understanding of some of that bleakness. Whereas I think before I've been like, oh, look at this, like, it's this beautiful, like, fungal landscape, and they have these masks and, you know, like, not thinking about like how, like the the threat of like, what happens if a spore gets inside the mask, you know, because I'd be like, oh, well, a spore won't go in because they have masks and masks always work. Mm -hmm. But it just feels so scary mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. You know? yeah that scene in book two where nausicaa has joined the yeah. tormekians and they encounter like miasma in an area that doesn't normally have it and the, yeah. one of the soldiers like doesn't put his mask on in time and then he gets a whiff and immediately starts spewing blood that was like at the beginning of covid you know it's like oh my right. god like i don't have his mask i'm going to i'm gonna get sick or i'm gonna get someone else sick you know and that like this this one single mask is, is keeping me from life or death you know like that that was like really hit home i was like oh man yeah for sure <laughs> and and there's also this sense i think throughout like of like the desire to take off the mask like the desire to kind of have the mask mm-hmm. off as often as possible that like until you've had to wear one all day while doing your job <laughs> i think it's hard to imagine the physicality of like having this thing on your face and thinking about it all the time and like even just these little cloth masks you know i want to take it off all the time (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. i mean in just thinking about like a world where i think that most people with covid there is a sense of hope of beating it and the vaccines coming and feeling this sense that there is a possibility of getting on the other side of being in this this absolute swell of death due to the pandemic and just constant threat. Mm-hmm. And in the manga, it's not something you can get on the other side of. And it's always there. Mm-hmm. And I think now that just feels just remarkably heavy and difficult and like a threat that I didn't understand properly until mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like what I really appreciated from reading this during the time of COVID was there's no 
going back quote unquote or like sense of normalcy that people are trying to change just like how do we continue living on with this reality that we're always gonna you know have like hope isn't bright and and cheery and and there isn't closure and there isn't some kind of you know happy ending to everything the hope is in the fact that you're gonna sit with the reality that people have died that in the case of the manga that the forest will expand forever and it was you know created by man with the intention that the current people living are all going to die and all going to go extinct but how do you like pivot from that and change that's like where the hope lies yeah yeah i loved that at the end of it there was a kind of like a rejection of that like the end point is like this cleansed pure version and that we would all as humanity just like give over to this anticipated vision of like beating it and getting back to the way things were supposed to be or whatever um right in like what's mm-hmm. emanating from that biocomputer mm-hmm. that's like oh we're gonna like fix everything and Nausicaa is like no I reject that as the future mm-hmm. and I reject it as the narrative that I'm working for and that to me was just like such a brilliant moment I think because like as I was reading it, I was wondering if there would be a moment of needing to like condemn humanity as like the corruption, the true corruption is humanity or something like that. And like when that's not what it is, I was just like, I'm so glad, you know? (laughs) Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's really kind of mind blowing. Or anyway, I feel like this text deals with that in a way that I haven't seen in a lot of other places. And I feel like for me, that's one of the most... Mm -hmm exciting and you know just like valuable and unique parts of this text and kind of feels really before its time because you know even just talking about this covid year that is now almost a full 12 months in the states living with the virus like at the beginning i think there was a real knee-jerk response toward like you know covid is punishment for our human hubris and our you know like it's here to like cut the population because there's too many of us and just this total like these ways of thinking that have always really you know, pissed me off because they always seem to end up being like, well, who in the population is going <laughs> to disappear for for your like your vision of a less populous right. earth? Like it's definitely mm-hmm. all going to be poor people and people of color. Mm-hmm. And now we have a word for that. That's ecofascism, right? Like mm-hmm. this idea that that like the response to human destruction is just like death. Like we should all just die. Right. I feel like this manga is coping really directly with the question of like that if we cause all this destruction, then we should just cease to exist. And she's constantly in the in the final volumes being drawn toward that philosophy. Like it's literally, there's a point in the book where she's kind of in this kind of in-between reality and this actual figure of a skeleton sort of asking her to kind of give in to like, nothing matters. Mm-hmm. Everything should die. Mm-hmm. You should die. All people should die. And the book sort of lines that up as the simple answer. Like the simple answer is death and nothing is ever simple. So it's got to be more complicated than that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I dug up an old interview with Miyazaki on a site, Nausicaa.net. It's not, (laughs) not the best translation, I don't think. But he says in this, there can't be an ecosystem with a purpose and there's there's another another part of it where he says and this is Miyazaki talking for example we can plant a camphor tree next to our office but we don't know what will happen to this tree 
We can't predict what this tree will bring to humans, if it gives someone an opportunity to fall in love, or if it falls down and brings this building down. It's arrogant to think that we can predict. Humans can make a start or set things up, but we cannot determine what will stay or whether a god will stay there or not. I think this is a more appropriate way to see this world. And there's a connection there with the sort of like animist idea that comes from Shinto of the idea of a god coming and staying inside something like a tree that you plant. It's just not something that's within the control that you have over the environment, even if you are interacting with or affecting the environment or needing it to do or be certain things. It is too big. It is beyond your control. I love that he said that. And I love that this entire manga is about that in a way. Yeah. Like, I guess one thing I was thinking there was just the difference between ecosystem and then things that are more like human tools or human weapons. Like you have battle and war and, you know, for example, airships and people are shooting each other and having all these battles and violence. And there are elements of the ecosystem that are used as um, tools of war at different points. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the thing you see that's different in those circumstances is like when they have that like artificially created fungus that creates its own sea of corruption in the Dorok lands. It's like, it's its own thing. And yeah, lands, they can't control exactly. it. Exactly. It lands down there and it is not a moral actor on the axis of political intrigue that humans are operating on. It's just, it's doing its own thing. And then it takes on new meaning in the world. And it's not something that any of the characters can predict. And, you know, the thing I'm always happy about in this manga, too, is that it doesn't end up being like, you thought it was going to help you, but it's hurting you. Like, Sometimes that happens, but then other times things are just sort of like unpredictable and they just do other things than anything that humans would need or want or expect to have happen. Yeah. And ultimately we learn that, you know, many of the elements of the ecosystem that the people we meet in this manga are dealing with were developed by the people who were living a thousand years ago as tools or bioweapons. It really like, for me connects so strongly to this to this project by an anthropologist whose work I really love, whose name is Anna Lonehop Singh. And folks might know her as the author of The Mushroom at the End of the World, which is an anthropological study of maitake mushrooms. And it's an incredible book. She kind of looks at them as mushrooms that are like these incredible delicacies, but they grow, you know, we've been talking a lot about like this idea of pure wilderness, like they only grow in impure wilderness, hillsides that have been clear cut and in places that have already experienced interventions by human beings. So she's really interested in the ways that things that humans think we have control over interact with more than human. So that sometimes that's creatures, but it can also be weapons, it can be tools, it can be processes. And her most recent project is called Feral Atlas. And it's this website I can't even describe it. It's kind of this wild digital project that folks should definitely go check out. But the thing I feel like that's so useful for talking about Nausicaa and thinking about like how the mold and the tools and the folks in the Shua crypt are like acting on the world of the manga is like this idea of feral versus wild. So like, you know, we've been talking about like wilderness as like one half of a binary where it's like wilderness civilization 
purity, impurity. And the feral is like not wild as in that half of the binary, not wild as in like pure or prior or like, you know, before nostalgia, but wild as in like totally out of your control. What Singh is is kind of pointing out about so many of the like effects of climate change and the effects of the Anthropocene. Like I think a lot of us think about this period that we're living in, the Anthropocene, like named because human beings are having such an impact on the geologic record and the world and the climate. But that doesn't mean humans are controlling it. Like just because you start something doesn't mean you can finish it. And I think that's a big part of the point of her work. All these other creatures and processes are doing their own thing here and we can't control it. We can't just like, you know, carbon tax or carbon sequester our way. You know, we can't like innovate our way out. (laughs) And I feel like that happens in Nausicaa. Like people continually, the Doric emperor, the Tauromachian emperor, like, they're continually trying to innovate their way or fight their way out of the situation that they're in. And it's just like, it's never going to work. Yeah. And it's interesting because I feel like Nausicaa has been framed of like this epic of like nature versus humanity. But in reality, it's like all this aberration, you know, the the forest is man-made. The humans that now live in this post-apocalyptic society a thousand years after the seven days of fire are all like hybrids mutations of what humans were before so it's it's not human versus like nature at all it's something entirely different and there is no such thing as like control yeah there's no control and there is no versus like there's no way of like othering nature enough even to be like versus it because (laughs) the mold is human made but it's also made by itself right like i love that scene where right after they unleash the like weaponized mold that the doric have developed they're just like holy crap what just happened <laughs> like that was not what we expected or intended and then it's just gone it dies in order to lay a seed bed down for a new sea of decay and it's like entirely after its own intentions i was thinking when you were talking about how you know they're like trying to innovate their way out of it and that's just not really possible here it connected for me with i guess some of the perceptions i had around the ending because when nausicaa rejects this idea of a purified world populated by these perfect engineered humans i did like I viewed human innovation in a positive light in that moment because I thought, I don't think she's imagining, well, we're all just going to die because I decided to opt out of this purified future. And I feel like part of right. what's in it is the idea that humans can be capable of innovation in a collaborative way with nature, with the ecosystem. And there is going to need to be human artifice and innovation in perpetuating humanity in collaboration with the way the world is now, as opposed to in anticipation of this future arrival or whatever. And I started to kind of imagine forward, like, I don't know, technology or a project that isn't for war and conflict, but is for imagining the human future as the sea of corruption does what it does, which it does filter out the poisons and it creates that area beneath where people can breathe. And then knowing that like, eventually that's going to make it so that like this version of humanity would die off. I can see a world where they'd be like, we need to then now work again with our genetics 
and find a way for us to evolve and adapt to whatever the ecosystem is becoming, given that this process is taking place. Yeah. But I felt like even the idea of like human artifice or innovation felt both fruitless and um, conflict driven in, in one framing. And then like in other moments, I'm like, I actually love that about the version of humanity that I see through the eyes of the protagonist and the narrative and the author, which is that, you know, we're capable of coping with and accepting change. Mm. It was so meaningful for me to think about Octavia Butler in the context of this. Thinking of Earthseed, which is the religion invented by Butler's main character in Parable of the Sower and continued on in Parable of the Talent. And the central tenet of that religion is God is change. And it just is so similar in a way to the orientation of this whole arc where it's not about there being a promised land. It's not about there being a grand narrative of good and evil. It's about being a partner of change, a collaborator with change, inviting change to be something that is an aspect of your life that you acknowledge and confront and face and not something that you try to hold off or to revisit some of that language battle or get past or fix. And I was just interested in how now that that seed of that idea has been planted in my head by Butler, I, I couldn't help but also draw the similarities between this sort of like a woman protagonist that's like this total visionary who's like the sort of harbinger of this way of seeing things um, and just sort of embodies this whole concept, this whole idea, um, which is that change is not the enemy. It is, in fact, the cosmic or spiritual force that we are working with in our, our practice of, of living. I've never read Harold Sower, but it's just so relevant to Nausicaa because that's essentially like the final chapter of the book. The enemy isn't a artificial mold or these two warring empires fighting for the last remaining fertile land or it's the crypt. Yeah. You know, it's this it's the crypt that refuses to change, that is just steeped in ancient technologies, you know. And then like you've been saying that how at the end Nasaka's like, no, we can't go back to what was. We have to embrace change, you know. I, yeah. And I think like that's the hardest part. And and it's so interesting because like in the manga, the way the crypt is mm -hmm. illustrated is like it's a moving, breathing, like really so grotesque or like human flesh. It's like a mound of human flesh that is because it has refused to change. Like I think of it as a probably like the consciousness of like the society as it was before. It's like because it refuses to change, it's like totally become deformed and like rotting and falling apart and like at the end when it when it's destroyed like literally this crypt is like bleeding to death which i just think is such an intense intense oh, image yeah it's like exploding with this black blood like because it's in black and white too it's like it's not even red it's just like black oozing spurting blood <laughs> yeah and that's a theme that the doric empire has these two brothers who are leading it and their father before them and there's this sort of conflict within the family where the Dorok, it turns out, are the kind of heirs of all of this technology. The Shua crypt is in the heart of the Dorok Empire. It's in the capital. 
and the technologies developed by this ancient civilization are like in sort of various forms passed down through the Doric emperors and they are using this technology to like create new bodies and live for hugely long time spans and stay immortal. But at some point, these bodies that are manufactured through this process can just like fall apart. They can just start like spurting blood and falling apart. And that happens twice in the course of the comic. And it's it's grotesque, like in the sense of like, it's both gross and it's also like weirdly funny. And it's very upsetting. <laughs> and, and then on the other hand, there's there's a, the other brother, Mirabella, who's like for a time in the manga, he's kind of the big bad. And he refuses to like change bodies because he's afraid of this rapid decay that happens. But instead, he's just like experiencing a different kind of decay. So there's this sort of thing where like to be afraid of dying doesn't mean you get out of decaying. Like it just means you decay while you're alive. <laughs> it seems to be like the sort of like moral lesson that Nausicaa is putting out there. And that goes for the emperors and for the crypt itself. It's just this huge pile of decaying corpses. <laughs> yeah. I mean that that whole like avoid death and biotechnology kind of swirl in the Dorak religion and the whole way that they've established their hierarchy by kind of using this technology to build power and sort of sustain power over many lifetimes. It's so interesting. Like, I just like love that like when you get to the crypt, it's it's got that kind of like oozing fleshy feel to it. Yeah, this biotechnology is like way more interested in the bio aspect of it than most biotech imaginaries that I've ever seen. Like, it's interested in like the body is like this squishy, like, limb filled blood filled you know how the parts have to be attached <laughs> like they can also be detached like it's like a much grosser more fluid filled body and therefore like a much more realistic body than most of the biotech i've ever seen imagined yeah no i mean i think the the god warrior is a really great example of that where it's just like ulma is, is rotting as it walks to oh my god that part is so so, so intense <laughs> Uh-huh. Or in, in the movie, that entire sequence of this, um, I mean, in the movie, the God Warrior doesn't actually have like a consciousness and is just actually a weapon of destruction. Whereas in the manga, Oma is, is like is that actual character that develops intelligence. Um, but in the movie, like the way that um, the God Warrior is drawn and animated where it's like its flesh is rotting its blood is just drooping down everywhere and like you see it's it's rotting flesh like travel down the sand dunes was yeah was, was really memorable as a child and the person who actually animated that entire sequence and was in charge of the god warrior sequence his name is Hideaki Anno and he was he's the creator of Neon right. Genesis Evangelion yeah um, that had some like gross stuff, like gross big body things in it too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's like clearly inspired by the God Warriors because I think the you know, and even uh, Evangelion is like a mecha, um, mecha story, but the mecha aren't they're not robots. They're they are humanoid creatures with body armor on them. So like it look, you know, at first you think it's a robot, but then there's this like one scene in the anime where the helmet gets destroyed and like you see this creature's eye and it's like directly related to like you can see the clear influence from Nausicaa 
Um, that's a total sidebar. No, it's. I feel like it's not a sidebar at all because it's. I mean, I think there's a point being made there about all technology as, in a way, biotechnology. Like, I feel. I feel like technologies, just because they aren't maybe literally made of like flesh and bone, doesn't mean that they don't have flesh and bone interactions in the world. I think that's part of the kind of thing that I feel like that kind of sense of the of feral technologies, because like you know, it may be made of like plastic and metal, but com- computers are still doing some of the same work as God warriors are doing. I mean, mm-hmm. like we think about like uh, the way we talk about like the nuclear codes, like nuclear Holocaust is kind of where Nausicaa is maybe originating more than because mm-hmm. Miyazaki uh, is thinking so much about the atom bomb and the attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and also the Cold War that it's coming out during and this sort of threat of nuclear bombs. I mean, that's all computers talking to each other, <laughs> but but it's also, you know, exploded body parts and, <laughs> and blood. I loved the part in the manga where Oma becomes this character, this child that yeah. Nausicaa has to interact with. And, you know, there are aspects of nuclear bombness about that character um, because it's it's like emitting radiation and it's this super weapon. Right. But then also like there's this feeling about it that reminds me of some of mm-hmm. the feelings I have about AIs, this fear of them like accelerating their process mm-hmm. of like cognitive development, which is like what happens with Oma. Um, like at the beginning, he's like, mama and then like later he's like more and more i make determinations about like what happens i'm the judge um i decide i'm the arbiter arbiter. yeah (laughs) and it's like this this like technology narrative of like computers are going to become their own thing they're an organism and again we get into that like feral mindset in the digital realm where it's like machine learning and Um, These sort of like artificial consciousnesses are, again, something that like we bring into being, but we don't control how they're interacting with the other systems that they can touch and interact with. I guess one of the things that comes up in my mind when we're talking about this sort of scary acceleration idea of AI is like how much pain the God Warrior is in. Like we were talking about that tooth scene and like definitely thinking about the visuals of this manga. Like I feel that tooth falling out every time I see it. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I mean, I think that for me, one of the impactful aspects of her relationship with Oma is just how much she views him as being in need of care. And I, you know, I've had conversations with people about that with AIs as the subject, where there is this idea of them as a specter or the scary other. And you know, if you're creating them as a being and then automatically otherizing them, it, it's like this this limited way of right. imagining how you could interact with a being at all. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's incredible how in Nausicaa, it's like this super weapon, this this mecha, like that is an incredibly threatening specter throughout like a lot of the manga finally shows up and exists. And the the reaction is, this is a baby that needs to be taken care of. It has needs and it has these legitimate desires and stakes in what's happening. And it has its own, or he has his own unique understanding of what all of this is. And there's a light in which that can be really like scary and threatening and like scary acceleration, like, oh, it's all out of control. 
But then there's another way that we can look at that as that's another being in the world. We can't really control anyone. And it's about recognizing the other and being able to extend care and understanding and thinking about what is that other's wants? What is that other's needs? How is that other seeing the world? And I feel like that's a lot of the pattern of how she interacts with him. Um, there's a lot of like internal, like I felt like more than in any other book, you see Nausicaa's thinking in the panels. And that's like her reasoning about this other person that is in her care and thinking like, what does he need? Mm-hmm. I remember there's that one panel where she's like, I'm. I despise the God warrior and yet here I am acting as his mother and I'm sending that my child off to, to its own inevitable destruction and potentially like humanity's destruction, you know? I mean, Nausicaa is one of the main reasons why I, I love her is just she doesn't other ever, like even with the mold, you know, right. she hears the mold's voices and like, you know, sees it as this another creature that just has a will to live and feels. She like extends a lot of compassion towards this mold that was brought into the world with the sole purpose of like triggering a daikaisho. And then because of that, it's suffering so much, you know? So I think in that sense, like... Yeah. And I think there's something there about like how like everything has its own will, its own needs, its own stakes in what happens and that goes for all living entities and it also goes for technologies i keep kind of coming back to this classic american second amendment phrase guns don't kill people people kill people and i feel like in the light of nausicaa a statement like that it's just revealed this so naive because all technologies have their own stake <laughs> in the situation whether that's like a conscious stake or driven by like other ways of needing like Oma is a good example of that because he you know he has this consciousness he has an interpersonal relationship with Nausicaa but he's also a killing machine like that's what he does it's what he likes to do and I love that that is the way that it's framed in the characterization because it's not just like this is all he knows how to do he's not like trying to bake pancakes but just ends up shooting beams of radiation (laughs) like like, he's like no i can't kill here and i want to leave i'm tired of being here because i want to go where i can kill where are your enemies and she's like there are no enemies and he's like well then i'm gonna have to rot and also (laughs) i'm gonna kill some people (laughs) it's just who i am (laughs) it's what i want yeah and 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 things want things like things you know Guns want to go off and mold wants to grow and and Omu want to protect the forest. <laughs> and like this sort of pretense of othering is that you can like separate and understand and therefore control the impulses of, of others, maybe. It feels to me like there's a connection between the idea of othering and the idea that you can like completely control another being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ignoring ignoring those needs, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Othering just like allows you to ignore the needs and not hear it or not even attempt to empathize, which then means if you can, you know, not see it as relatable to yourself, then yeah, of course, controlling it or the the illusion of controlling it would be easier, you know, which is what happened with the mold. Yeah. There's so much in that. Like, I feel like part of it, the idea of having control over other people is 
having control over what you believe about other people and what you think the narrative is. It reminds me of this moment, part of the end that I keep thinking of as we're talking, which is like the moment where Gnostica is talking to this projection of the people from the past who created these technologies and these people are located in the crypt of Shua and they are telling her that basically the purpose of the sea of corruption is to purify the world from all the pollution that they've put into it and eventually make it safe for them to return, right? Bring everything back to the way that it was. And they say they didn't have any time. Yeah, the line is, we had no time. We decided to entrust everything to the future. And that line in itself is, it just like contains so much because it's a complete lie, right? Like they're not trusting the future. They're Mm. trying to control the future. They're trying from a thousand years in the past to determine exactly what the future will be and what the future will do. Nausicaa's response to that is just like, we have been artificially transformed. Our lives are our own, like we will continue to transform. You haven't actually controlled us. You haven't actually determined what the future will be. And so that like attempt to to project that forward is like because of the feralness <laughs> of, of all of these interactions of human and non-human things, like it's just not possible. That kind of brings up this question for me. What do you think about the sense of Nausicaa as like a prophet? There are ways in which that makes me a little bit uncomfortable, I think, just because it sometimes feels like Nausicaa is the only thing in the manga that's like any one pure thing. Oh, it makes me uncomfortable too. Like a prophet to who, you know, because mm. towards the beginning of the book, it's like a prophet of like renewal and hope. But then we see with the Doric people, she's worshipped as a prophet of death, a harbinger of death, you know, and then... At the very end, we discover that even like Nausicaa's role was attempted to be controlled by the crypt. Right. And I think it's it's like too clean and easy to sum up like Nausicaa's role as a prophet. You feel like the fact that the meaning of prophet is so different to all these different people that that kind of undoes this idea of like pure goodness. Yeah, yeah. And definitely, I think, and in that sense, like pure goodness definitely isn't her because in the end, she ends up destroying all of these new lives that would have been after the forest undergoes its quote unquote purification. You know, she she kills thousands of of those embryos, those eggs, you know? Um, So even like, yeah, no, she's not a she's not a prophet. She, I mean, I guess you're just like she's a prophet of change, but yeah, I think she also just rejects that status or box that people are trying to put her in. How do you see that act at the end? Like the fact that she does destroy the embryos of the ancients who meant for her to like help them repopulate the purified world. I mean, I definitely see those guys as kind of bad guys because I don't know, they were like, they were like white flight. They were like, we're leaving this <laughs> this world. <laughs> And then we're just going to wait a a few decades until like the housing prices go down and we miss lattes and then we're going to come back and take your houses. (laughs) And they're like climbing out of these like oozing like egg like sacks to gentrify the neighborhood, you know, (laughs) with their craft beer. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) It's like the thousand year old technologies of, of IPA. (laughs) <laughs> that's actually the fluid that they were floating in inside those sacks <laughs> an umbilical cord just full of of craft beer mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah like the occasional cronut <laughs> that's right <laughs> what was the original question again 
<laughs> yeah, was that like what is like so is it wrong to destroy them? Do you guys think there's a moral weight on that? Oh. I think Miyazaki is just saying that life is life, you know. So and yeah, I mean I think Nausicaa destroying those embryos who uh, but then we get it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean I think it's like Nausicaa's decision to essentially like kill off all of the the egg sac people like she was weighing between do I choose this quote-unquote perfect world that supposedly exists that I can like Nausicaa can only literally visit it in spirit right because if she goes there it exists in that world she dies she spits up blood and and dies you know so it's like is that do I choose this world or the world that we currently live in that's like filled with change and nuance and suffering but like I'm in it and I'm ready to like accept the chaos and anarchy that comes from living period but like at least I'm gonna do it and I'm doing it with people who are also willing to like walk with me you know yeah I mean I was gonna add like you know Nausicaa tries to avoid killing anyone and she has this moment at the beginning where she kills that one guy that shows up there with the Torumekians in the first book. Um, and they're like threatening the the Valley of the Wind, threatening that village. And she's like, I'll fight you. And then like, you know, somehow, you know, because I guess like, I <laughs> like she's like level 1000 and this guy is like level two. She just like, <laughs> you know, ends up killing this guy. And then it's like this horrible moment where she's like, I have this rage inside me. And she spends the whole narrative like trying not to kill. And then at this final moment, she is like, you know, in the English, it says like, I have sinned. And, you know, part of it is like, there's this like bigger picture thing where she was like, oh, these people were supposed to be like nonviolent versions of us. Um, and and it's just this terrible sin to like make us be the version of humanity that's going to sustain. But then there's like also this like personal character narrative for her of like, you know, I am taking action to like have these life forms be killed. And for her, that's like a huge thing because she made this decision to try not to do that. And she's facing her own humanity, which is that she has the possibility to not never other anyone, but even never othering, she's still capable of violence. And she's still so much power. She has so much power. I mean, she's like, she herself is kind of like a god in a way. But then like the flip side of it is this, like, I'm super excited that these craft beer sacks are not part of the future of this narrative. And that it's not this imaginary, like, gentrification of the sea of corruption. It's what is in the story now. Mm-hmm. And like, for me, that felt good, like reading that as the outcome of the narrative. But then like, I think that there's for me, like a moment of the idea of how much bloodshed there was throughout the story. And that this is another moment of it mm-hmm. is incredibly painful. Mm-hmm. There's so much sacrifice in this story. And I think, I mean, Nausicaa has to sacrifice so much of herself. And it's like these egg sacs, embryos are another another sacrifice she has to make in order to secure a, f- a future that is not that secure and incredibly unknown, but it's yeah. a, a sacrifice that she's willing to make. I feel like that's a super important point, Ellie, what you're saying about this. And I, and I think, I feel like part of what I hear you saying there is like, like almost hesitating before, like in order to secure 
what <laughs> right like, like what is it that nausicaa gets at the end of this manga and to be fair like sacrifice is kind of a funny way to put it because she's always trying for people not to die and yet everyone is always dying so like she never succeeds in not killing people or not sort of having people die around and because of her actions so like what is she what is it that she gets at the end of this i mean like self-determination mm-hmm. it's not like we have this child that we're protecting or we have this location that we're protecting, or we have this bloodline that will continue on or whatever, like, which are things in stories, you know, the kind of like MacGuffin of protection, I guess. (laughs) And so like, then what you're getting is the, I don't know, like the ability to not be wrapped up in a narrative like that, and to make determinations from day to day and month to month, how you're going to live in the ecosystem that you're in and the community that you're in, um, not be subject to something like larger in a way like that. Um, and by larger, I don't mean the ecosystem. I mean the like protect the, the chosen child kind of thing, like the life of Nausicaa and like the people that she's connected with and the people that she's been like a leader to is not about make sure these like chosen egg sacs like continue on into the pure future. It's like now this world and this life and what we do is about what we choose and how we decide to live right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would agree with that. I'd say it's, yeah, she gains Mm -hmm. freedom, you know, freedom from a narrative that has been, written for a thousand years and she finally breaks that loop you know like in westworld how the robots are like following their own like narrative loop right and they always try to break out of it it's kind of like that it's like trying to break her loop and in the end gain freedom to choose and whether that means mass extinction or they're all going to band together and care for each other in this new way of like you know recognizing that everyone has suffered what are we going to do about now we have like this amount of land left how are we all going to work in the future together you know and then along the way like she's changed so many people's lives like she changed kushana you know who went from imperialist militant leader to you know in the end we get that little epilogue of how kushana never actually takes the throne and hormekia never gains like an emperor so i feel like that you know and that was a, a choice that they gained after destroying Shua and I guess the Doric Empire and then also disbanding the Tormekian. Yeah. So it makes me realize it's kind of anarchist in a way. It's like at the end of the at the end of the manga, all the kings are dead, all the gods are dead. Yeah, right. It's just the people. people. (laughs) And there's no promise, like you're saying. There's no promise. It's not like like people sometimes talk about this manga as a utopian exercise. And I think it's about like ending the rule of like the forces that think they can control everyone. And like think that they have the right, you know, direction mm. and that they can just control everyone and make them do their will and that that's good, you know, <laughs> like um, whether that's like the the past or the or the emperors themselves, like it's like the sort of crisis where that ends, at least for this moment, you know, we don't know that little epilogue thing that you were just talking about, like it talks about Nausicaa and Kushana kind of like both sort of holding the empty space of rule where they're not going to step into it. You know, it doesn't make any promises after that. It doesn't say like, and everyone worked in harmony and nobody was ever hungry again. Mm -hmm. It's just this tenuous sort of present tense victory. Mm -hmm. I loved that outcome with Kushana in particular, 
Um, she had such an interesting arc over the course of the the manga, and especially, you know, I, I watched the movie also, and I felt like there was a little bit of like this idea I have that I call like the portal principle, which is a reference to the video game Portal. And of course, in that, um, you have a similar situation to what I thought was going to happen with Kushana, which is if it passes the Bechdel test, then one of the women has to be a villain. Right. And in the movie, that is true. But then in the manga, it's like, this is way more complex than villainy. And she gets such a nuance in being an outgrowth of the circumstances that she has landed in by being a royal. And then being able to be changed by Nausicaa and have her own perspective on all of this. And then ending up in this situation of saying, no good will come of me, you know, being the next person to step up and kind of organize everyone and make the world peaceful. And it's it's so it's so interesting how Nausicaa is is I think you were saying before it was like, it's like portrayed as a utopia, and I was like, there's another nothing utopian about this book, and it's just I find it really interesting how in the movie WWF mm-hmm. like endorses it as like a eco movie, you know, and it is. I mean, the movie is but like when you compare it to the manga it completely blows any simple notion of that away you know and i think it's really interesting because like wwf is a right. you know six old conservation organization that's like steeped in very neocolonial mm. of like conserving nature you know of like what nature used to be what nature used to be <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> we will never be like that ever again and like we have to deal with the consequences of our very thoughtless actions you know and that's like literally what this book is talking about oh hell yeah and i feel like this book kind of sends up conservationism in a way that like you know the movie the movie doesn't really have space to get into that but that like moment i think it's in book it's in book six where where she's on her way to shua with oma and she like sees this tree in the middle of the desert and she's like what's that and she goes down and there's this she gets kind of trapped in a simulation that the that was that's like set up to kind of keep people from getting to the crypt by like keeping them in this sort of like happy world of talking goats yeah and this shaman character Mm -hmm. who seems to kind of be drawn from maybe like stereotypical kind of western indigenous tropes maybe i'm not i I may be missing some some of the history of that those visuals there but it's like part lotus eaters and it's part like a send-up of the kind of like woo-woo approach to conservation and environmentalism yeah and that's where like that whole spiritual bypassing part comes through right because i really think like especially in dealing with our current ecological crisis it's all tied into you know structural racism and capitalism and patriarchy i think it's a really it's a spiritual thing that we have to go through and that is sitting down with ourselves and really getting uncomfortable and you know all of this putting all of our hopes and dreams into someone else is in a sense like spiritual bypassing it's like you know Nausicaa in this beautiful garden of Eden and she literally almost loses sight of what she's trying to do because it's just so cozy and comfortable and beautiful there. And like the keeper of the garden is also trying to get her to stay, to be quote unquote healed, to like stay in this pure paradise. It's like you're just sitting with yourself isn't comfortable. It isn't all white and minimalist and bright and spacious, like floor to ceiling windows, you know, it's, it's dark and it's gritty. <laughs> yep. The Crypt of Shua. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
just like the whole idea of that like being thrown up in front of her as like the like last ditch effort to prevent her from getting there to this crypt mm. at the end that is going to be this sort of confrontation with what's really been going on here and self-determination and the grossness of that place is like this like illusion of mm. that ideology, I guess. I hadn't thought of that as ideological mm. in that way when I was reading it, but that makes so much sense to me. Like, as you're saying it now, like whoever ends up there seldom on this idea of you, you were saying like preserving things the way they used to be. And, you know, if you think about it, what that shamanistic figure tells Nausicaa when she's there is that there was someone else who showed up there, which was um, the other, um, the older brother of Mira Lupa, who was the one yeah. Dorak emperor guy that was like mm-hmm. harassing Nausicaa psychically. Um, <laughs> he's just, he's always feeling up on her aura. That's what I'm saying. Like, leave her alone. Which is another thing very familiar with hanging out in those, like, woo environmentalist spaces. People always feeling on your aura. <laughs> um, but then this other guy, Namulith, had been there. And the result of going there was that he tried to be this king that was going to do the thing where it was like, I have more power. I have more knowledge. I have more nuance and depth and capability to ally everyone and make the world good and bring this idea of harmony and perfection to everybody. And then it's like, there was this fall in, in the story of this character where I believe what happened is that he felt like the infighting um, was stupid, and then this whole empire fell apart. And well, he just tries to innovate his way to perfection, and then he ends up becoming a despot and ultimately, like, literally a mm-hmm. talking head. It's like a really gory equivalent <laughs> of like he joined MSNBC. <laughs> <laughs> He was going to change everything, but now he just has a show. (laughs) Yeah, it's like that entire, like, if you compare those frames illustrated to, like, the utter gory, fleshy grotesqueness of, like, the the capital, it's like, it just feels like this greenwashing, you know? You know, because I I mean, I love how those frames are illustrated. It's so airy and, like, the way, very idyllic, you know? Yeah, it feels like a break. I mean, you've just been hanging out with this like radiation spewing poisonous light monster whose teeth are falling out. Yeah, yeah. And then you take this wonderful medicinal bath and I'm like, I want that. Yeah. Like, I mean, whenever Nausicaa's there, but um, it's like trying to lure Nausicaa into taking like the easy way out, trying to like make her become this prophet that she was supposed to be. But then inevitably, you know, if she had stayed there and become this prophet, then like the civilization that she knows it as it is would would cease to exist. And then the IPA filled embryos <laughs> would, <laughs> would reemerge, you know? Yeah. yeah. I also love that connection between like greenwashing and like medicinal baths. And like, because there is like, there is this sort of like 
you know, I don't want to be too pithy, but like sort of self-care philosophy, I guess, that is being touted in the simulation of, you know, happy times and talking animals. Again, though, it's more nuanced than I immediately giving it credit for, because of course, she really does need a break. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like she needs that care. I mean, I really thought you were going to be like, of course, she really needs a bath. <laughs> I mean, she does. She's dirty. (laughs) How many people have exploded in her vicinity? Semi-intelligent, like, goats are like, you stink, man. Get in the bath. (laughs) No offense, but you really, really need one. We haven't seen you take a bath in the entire seven books. (laughs) No, I I was going to say about that whole, like, self-care narrative. I was actually listening to a yoga teacher on a yoga podcast I sometimes listen to, Javana Heyman, and he does yoga for disabled folks and actually started as a yoga teacher to generally do yoga for folks with HIV and AIDS during the AIDS crisis. And he said that there is this false narrative that a particular type of manifestation of wellness or quote-unquote health is held up as this goal in wellness cultures, um, definitely in the world of yoga. And Mm -hmm. for many people who want to move their bodies and understand their bodies, this particular idea of health and wellness is not an option and not meaningful as a as a quote-unquote goal. And even the idea of doing a movement practice with this goal in mind is maybe not core to Mm. what movement is and being embodied is. Like that for me connects with this idea of like cleansing and taking this like scented bath and having wellness. You know, even thinking about all the different bodies that you see in this manga, a lot of them are not according to what you would traditionally say is this is health and wellness. Like you have Oma's disintegrating. You have folks in the Valley of the Wind who have the hardening mm-hmm. disease. Um, like Mito has this. And, you know, saying that there's a problem or that that's not meeting our ideal or something, I don't know, that feels inherent in that idea of like, again, purity and needing cleansing and needing health. That reminds me so much of um, another really amazing thinker, Eli Clare, who talks about environmentalism from the perspective of disability studies. And, and like this idea that you're bringing up, Nat, he frames it as the idea of cure, like the idea of like curing the environment. And like all the medicinal baths in the manga are not going to make Nausicaa able to withstand the pure world that they have envisioned returning, right? Like that's one of the things I feel like this manga really stands against is this notion of like cure. What's interesting to me in light of this conversation is thinking about her as a messiah and the reaction of some of the characters in the story to her as a messiah. You know, a lot of people treat her that same way where her identity becomes somewhat commodified as this savior. Mm -hmm. And I think in part that ending resists the narrative outcome that Nausicaa as this messianic figure would be able to figure out a solution that's morally uncompromised. Yeah. Um, which does happen in some narratives where you have a like a savior figure where it's like, oh, we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. 
And then, like, the savior was like, ha ha, I, I blow up the rock and the hard place, and there's a new world. And everyone's like, everything's fine. And then the, the like, denouement of the story is how this, like, heretofore unimagined outcome was available through this person. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that person then is that tech bro who was like, you know, through much thought and research and hard work, like my startup, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But she does not do that. Basically, the story here is like, you know, the more capability you have to be empathetic, to hold complexity, the more you draw near to immense responsibility and immensely compromised decisions. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm. Yeah. Wow, that was just a really good, good hole. Sorry, I, was like, I created a cliff oh, no. that we jumped off. <laughs> no, that's perfect. I'm just like, that's deep. That's good. <laughs> this has been Queers at the End of the World. Next time on Queers at the End of the World, we're talking about mushrooms. They're among the most important forces in the world of Nausicaa, and they're also the unofficial mascot of queer climate activism. So we'll be talking to mycologist Dr. Patricia Kashian and writer and educator Hasmik Julakian about their collaborative work on the queerness of mushrooms and mycology. It's an amazing conversation, truly, all about boundary crossing and remediation and the importance of naming. You won't want to miss this one. Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa, who you can find for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world. The music for this episode was La Fin des Ericots by Tintamare. You can find us at queerworlds.com or at queerworlds podcast on Instagram. If you enjoyed the show, we would really, really appreciate it if you'd rate and review us. It helps people find us, and it lets us know that you're out there listening. And tell a friend who you think will enjoy it. That's by far the best way for folks to find out about the podcast. Part of the point of all this is for us to talk to our community, so we'd love to hear back from you. Get in touch with us at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. All right. Good luck out there, dear hearts. If you dig deep enough on any like tech CEO's <laughs> goal in life, you're gonna get to wanting to live forever. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, like underneath it all, they just really want the nanobots that are always gonna be able to like fix their cancer or whatever when they <laughs> make them young and beautiful and able to enjoy their medicine. Oh my gosh! <laughs> or like having a like um like a blood boy. Yeah. <laughs> Because blood boys, <laughs> there have always been blood boys. <laughs> like, that's, like a, that's like a 17th century French problem, too. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm assuming by blood boy, Nat, you mean like some horrible thing where you have like a servant who's there to like, so you can have transfusions and remain. Yeah. 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 Yes, that's exactly what I'm referring to. Oh yep. my God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm glad we have, a, we have a shared shorthand for vampirism in the upper class. <laughs> yes.